Well, good morning, everybody. This is week two of our sermon series all about the book of Jonah. And uh, yeah, it is a story about a guy and a fish. That's just true. It is. There's a guy who gets swallowed by a fish. But as we're seeing and as we'll continue to see, the story is about way more than that. Jonah is a story about calling. It's a story about judgmentalism. And it's a story about grace, most of all. Grace, most of all. So let me recap you a little bit on on the narrative so far. Uh, We have met this this man named Jonah. He was a prophet of God, called by God to to bring a prophecy, bring a a prediction to the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of this evil, uh, terrifying empire, Assyria. And Jonah says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he goes the other direction. He tries to get on a boat all the way to Tarshish, the other side of the world. He flees from God's presence and tries to get across as if you can do that. Like he literally is trying to get onto the ocean that God made uh, to get away from God. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, God sends a storm. It, it uh, threatens to capsize the boat and kill all the sailors that are on the boat. And, and eventually, to save everyone's life, Jonah is tossed overboard and the ship is saved. The storm goes away. But Jonah is now sinking into the deep ocean where God moves in and sends a giant fish to swallow him so that he can survive. And most importantly, so that he can be brought back to his calling and and put back on track with what he's here to do. Okay, so that's the overall narrative. And today we're going to look at what happens while Jonah is in the belly of the fish. And guys, I did a little bit of research this week, and I found a photorealistic depiction of that moment. This is actually not. Uh, Jonah, this is uh, Geppetto in the 1940 classic Pinocchio. Uh, how many of you, like me, grew up thinking that that's what the inside of a whale <laughs> looked like? Yeah, I did. I totally did. It turns out that's not, there's not, it's not just a giant cavity inside with, it uh, doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, that is not actually photorealistic. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Go ahead and grab a Bible, please. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. In the house Bibles, in the seats in front of you, it'll be page 763. Uh, And while you're doing that, I just thought this week, I realized, you know, we have not, there's one thing that we offer here at Grace that we haven't talked about from up front in quite a while. And I thought some of you probably would like to go a bit deeper or, or to kind of keep the conversation going with some of these passages that we talk about on the weekends. Turns out we do that, and we do it very consistently. Between every Sunday service, we do this. Well, most. We, we miss a couple weeks. But what we have is a podcast called Between Sundays. And some of you are faithful listeners. You've listened to every episode, but some of you didn't know it existed until just now. Between Sundays is a podcast where Marin, uh, Tyler, and myself— we get together and we just, we crack wise for a little bit about our lives and then we dive into uh, the message from that past weekend. And sometimes we have special guests, and, but always we get into some really good conversations. Sometimes, you know, maybe we disagree on some things. Sometimes we, we dig into to some stuff that we didn't have the chance to talk about in the message, etc. So I'm encouraging you, check it out. I think if you just search Between Sundays, you'll be able to find it. I know there's a couple other podcasts that maybe are similar, but you'll figure it out when you hear our voices. <laughs> Start, if it's a little jaunty little tune and Tyler says, well, well, welcome, then you found the right podcast. Okay, let me pray for us and then we will, we will get into Jonah 2. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this morning, this beautiful fall morning. We are so grateful for all the ways that you walk with us, that you reveal yourself to us. We are just, we're just humbled that we get to be called by you. And so, Father, as we 
As we open your word, as we read this this story, I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts to have soft hearts, open hearts to what you have to say for us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak clearly, and I pray that we would listen. I pray that in these moments, I would just disappear and that your spirit would remain. Father, we want to be different. We want to be changed because of what we encounter in your word today. So, Father, would you speak? Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Right before we open up and read Jonah 2, I do want to tell you, uh, remind you something that I talked about last week, and that is how we are approaching this book. Like, what, what's the, what's the uh, sort of general vibe that we are striking when it comes to understanding Jonah? I mentioned last week that, that the genre of the book of Jonah, from my perspective, is that of a parable. A parable is a story that, was, that is designed in such a way to illustrate a deeper truth or a moral lesson. Parables are meant to provoke us. They're meant to, to grab us by the, by the collar and say, you know, pay attention. This is, this is for you. Uh, they speak into our own lives. And that is what Jonah is. Now, by calling it a parable, I'm not saying that the whole thing is necessarily made up. I'm not saying that it's necessarily fictional. I'm saying that it is told in a parabolic way. I don't think that's actually a word, at least in this context, but you get what I'm saying, right? You read the book of Jonah, and it's full of these extreme moments. It's full of, 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 oh, it's got a cliffhanger ending, right, where we don't know what what Jonah says when God speaks to him. We don't know how he's going to respond. It's got these these ridiculous commands. Next week, we'll see that when when Nineveh repents, the king of Nineveh tells, tells everybody that everybody in the entire city has to fast and not drink any water, uh, hoping that God will, will relent. But he also says everybody has to wear sackcloth. That's like this like itchy fabric made from goat hair. And he's like, everybody has to wear it, including all the animals. So you got to imagine like chickens and cows walking around wearing like mourning clothes and sackcloth. It's extreme. It's ridiculous. It's meant to get our attention. Okay? So what I'm saying is whether it is, whether it is history or whether it's uh, some kind of ancient Jewish fable, this story, or maybe it's somewhere in between, this story is a parable, and we would be wise to learn from it. So let's learn from it. We're going to continue reading right where the story left off. Jonah is inside the giant fish, and then he recites some poetry? Hmm, that's different. Let's go ahead and read what he says. I'm going to read the whole chapter, because it's pretty short. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth, whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. Those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise. I I will fulfill all my vows, for my salvation comes from the Lord alone." 
Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to this great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time, Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and he went to Nineveh. Yeah, who would blame him, right? Okay, so let's talk about what we just read. This poem in in this chapter is, is what's commonly called in the Bible a psalm of thanksgiving, psalm of thanksgiving. If you were to go and look at the book of Psalms, a whole collection of poems and songs, uh, the book of Psalms is full of psalms of thanksgiving. And for the most part, they all follow a pretty similar pattern. You've got, you've got an introductory summary of answered prayer, right? Like Jonah here says, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. And then you've got reports of personal crisis, all that stuff about sinking beneath the waves. Uh, there's reports of divine rescue. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. And then they usually end with a vow of praise. And, and Jonah does too. He says, I will fulfill all my vows. So this psalm, it, it follows the pattern of a psalm of thanksgiving pretty much to the letter. Pretty much to the letter. And the language that Jonah uses here is actually pretty common, and you'll, you'll find this kind of language used a lot in other psalms throughout the Bible. Uh, this image of drowning in the sea, this is clearly an evocative image for the, for the people of Israel because they use it a lot. For example, Psalm 42, I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. Or uh, Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Or Psalm 18, the ropes of death entangled me, right? Just like the seaweed. Floods of destruction swept over me. So you hear this, this theme of drowning in the sea and drowning in the flood. It's a pretty common metaphor for the, for the ancient psalmists. And, and you wonder why it, it actually makes a lot of sense when you think about the ancient understanding of the, of the world, of how they understood the, the cosmos. How did it all fit together? You see, the sea... The ocean represented chaos to ancient peoples. I mean, it made sense, right? You go out into the ocean, what's going to happen? More likely than not, you're probably going to die because the ocean's a terrifying place. The sea swallows up boats, and it's, it's, a, it's a chaotic place. And in their understanding of the world, the sea wasn't just out there. It was also deep below and also above. The ocean, the, the, uh, the uh, chaotic waters were surrounding everything, and they were always threatening to burst in and take over. And, and so, so you can understand, in a chaotic, broken world, like the one we live in, it does sometimes feel like, like you're drowning. It does sometimes feel like the, the waters of chaos are, are rushing in. So it's a common image for, for the Israelites. Now, of course, in Jonah, it actually is happening. Literally, he is, you know, drowning. He's sinking beneath the waves. But nevertheless, the metaphor is, is a powerful one, and, and it works on multiple levels, right? You can see how it works on all those levels. Now, what makes this particular psalm of thanksgiving interesting to me is that the author has it coming from the mouth of Jonah himself, possibly even implying that Jonah wrote this psalm. Maybe he even wrote it while he was in the belly of the fish. We don't know. But the, the, the implication is that this is a psalm that's coming from the mouth of Jonah, from his heart. Yet again, yet again, I think in this parable, the author is trying to get our attention. He's trying to, to get our attention. Pay attention to this. And here's what I mean. First of all, all the theological claims in this, in this 
poem, they're all correct. They're all accurate. If you were to take this psalm out of Jonah and put it into the book of Psalms, nobody would bat an eye because this reads like a very uh, normal Jewish psalm. But think about some of the details that are, that are brought to light when you realize that Jonah is the one speaking them. You can see why there's some dissonance here. For example, in, in verse 2, Jonah says, I cried out to the Lord. Now, crying out to the Lord, that is, that is a, a right and proper thing for a godly Israelite to have done. You cry out to the Lord when you're in trouble. So good job, Jonah. Except the Hebrew word for crying out, it, it's kara, kara. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but kara. It's the same word for what Jonah has consistently refused to do so far in the story. Uh, God tells him to cry out, kara, to Nineveh, but he doesn't. He says no. Uh, during the, the storm, the ship's captain pleads with Jonah to cry out to his God, kara, to your God, and Jonah doesn't. A little bit later in the storm, uh, the sailors on the ship, they all decide to cry out, kara, to God. They, they cry out to Yahweh, but Jonah doesn't until, until he's moments away from death. Kara. So is Jonah crying out to God really a sign of his faithfulness? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe he only turned to God when he had no other choice, but he was going to wait to the last possible minute. So is he really so, so godly for crying out to the Lord? That's just one example. I'll give you another one. In verse 4 of this psalm, Jonah says, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence. Okay, but we know, don't we, that it was Jonah who fled from the presence of the Lord. It literally says that in chapter 1. So now he's saying, you've driven me away. Really, Jonah, you, come on, take some responsibility for your actions. Or another thing, in verse 8, we see Jonah belittling Gentiles who worship idols, who are idolaters. He says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all of God's mercies. And yet, think about what we read in chapter 1. We see Gentile sailors who turn from their idolatry and worship God, and they experience God's mercy, while Jonah stays silent, and he has to be tossed into the ocean for his obstinacy. Jonah here, he, he still seems to be holier than thou. He, he thinks that he's better than these Gentiles because he doesn't worship idols. And yet, in this story, in this whole book, he is the only one who consistently refuses to, to accept God's mercies. He turns his back on God's mercies himself over and over again. That's what chapter 4 of Jonah is all about. The sailors, they worship God. They experience mercy. The Ninevites repent and experience mercy. And Jonah throws a hissy fit because God shows them grace. I point all this out to say that this psalm of thanksgiving, it's true. Every word of it is true. It's theologically accurate. When we call on God, he rescues us from death and destruction. That's true. But I believe having this psalm come out of the mouth of Jonah is yet another attempt by the author to show us that Jonah is the anti-hero of this parable, maybe the villain of this parable. Yes, he's speaking truth, but he's speaking it for all the wrong reasons. So this dissonance, this, this juxtaposition, it, it, it's meant to get us thinking, right? Again, it's meant to get us scratching our, scratching our chin, scratching our heads and thinking, what 
is the author trying to say? So what is the author trying to say? I suppose this is a sermon. It's a great place to try to answer that question. What is he trying to get across here? Let's talk about that. Well, I pointed something out last week that I think is worth repeating because uh, it's easy to kind of miss this or forget this. The story of Jonah is not about the wrath and the judgment of God. It's about his mercy and his compassion and his grace, right? That's what the story is about. God's mercy, God's compassion, and God's grace. Again, I said this last week, but in the narrative logic of the story, the way that, that if you're an ancient Israelite, the, what you would expect to happen, Jonah deserves to die for rejecting God's call. That's what he's brought upon himself. That's what an ancient reader would expect. And yet, God saves him from death. He restores his calling, even though he doesn't deserve it. When Jonah calls for help, God rescues him. So maybe... Maybe having these words of truth coming from the mouth of this very unworthy man is a reminder to all of us that God's grace extends not just to the heathen sailors and not just to the evil nation, but to rebellious and selfish and thoughtless jerks like Jonah too. Maybe God's grace extends to them. He says, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble and he answered me. And you know what it doesn't say there? Because I deserved it. Here's what I think Jonah chapter 2 is telling us. This psalm of thanksgiving in the mouth of a rebellious prophet. Bottom line, God hears the voices of those who cry out to him. And his grace, his grace is big enough for everyone. God's grace is big enough for everyone who calls out to him. Or to put it another way, God doesn't just rescue the righteous. He doesn't just rescue those who've got it all figured out. He rescues the broken. He rescues the, those who have, have messed up. He rescues those who are, are currently still uh, very much trapped in their own self-destructive behaviors and sin. He rescues the broken. God's grace is big enough. Now, right there, that's plenty to chew on, in my opinion. I feel like that the sermon could probably end right there because that, that could be our big takeaway. Go home and just think about that. Think about God's grace and how big it is. But I don't, I don't want to end right there because as I've been meditating on this, this parable, as I've been thinking about this passage, there are two more specific applications or ideas that have really struck me that I feel are worth are worth sharing so that we can kind of work through them together. And I'll be honest, one of these things is actually a way that God has been convicting me about my own heart because of Jonah chapter 2. So I, I feel like it's important to share that with you, and so we're going to do that, all right? So, so let's get into it. The first takeaway that I'm struck with in this story is kind of with the overall challenge of the book of Jonah itself. God has grace for those who don't deserve it, do I? Not do I deserve God's grace. Do, do I have grace for those who don't deserve it? Do I have grace for others? In a few weeks, we are going to deal with Jonah's absolute rejection of God's grace for the Ninevites. 
And I mean, I've been talking about chapter four for a while. I think it's kind of building up. We're going to have to go there and talk about his heart and his, his mentality when he does not want the Ninevites to, to be rescued. Again, if you're an ancient Israelite, his attitude may make sense because you're conditioned to think that, that Nineveh deserves to burn, right? They deserve to burn. So it's a huge inversion of expectations when, when God comes along and spares this Gentile nation when they repent. It's a provocative idea. And, and you know what? As a Christ follower, it's an idea that gets even more provocative when you think about the, how this theme in Scripture continues to move even towards the person of Jesus. Jesus comes along and he says, I don't want you to just forgive your enemies. I want you to love them, right? This, suddenly God's grace for your enemies takes on epic proportions. It's crazy. The, the biblical call for the grace that we are to have, it's, it's challenging. It's a, it's a challenging idea for anyone. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When I read Jonah, I don't really have a pro- I'm not an ancient Israelite. I don't really have a problem with God sparing the Ninevites. Yeah, great. Bring the Gentiles into the fold. I love that. that I, I can see where the story's going. I know what's going to happen. So I'm like, love it, God. Love that you have grace for them. But I do struggle with something in this book. You see, I'm a Christ follower in 2022. I'm a pastor. And I'm trying to love people. I'm trying to love people at a time when so many Christians and other church leaders have, in my view, have kind of poisoned the well. Poisoned the well with with their hatred, with their judgmentalism, with their their holier-than-thou attitudes towards those outside the church. I I, I see it a lot. And frankly, I encounter and and I see and I know a lot of people who have rejected Christianity because they've been judged and condemned by Christians. The credibility gap is so wide. It's so wide, and it frustrates me that the biggest reason why is because of the behavior of fellow Christians, right? That is frustrating. It feels like we're trying to climb up a muddy hill right now. It's very, very frustrating. So that's kind of what I'm dealing with in my heart. And then I come along and I see this story. The story of a a prophet of God. One who has been literally called by God to represent his heart, his purpose towards the world. Right? That's literally Jonah's job. And I see Jonah sitting in judgment over people he doesn't like. Deciding for himself who deserves grace and who doesn't. I see him uh, staying silent and inactive while, while a whole ship full of innocent sailors is threatening to go down. I see him belittling Gentiles because he sees himself as superior. And here's what I'm realizing. No, I don't have a problem with God sparing the Ninevites. I think that's pretty grad. I think it's pretty great. I do think I have a problem with God sparing Jonah. I don't think he deserves to be spared because of what he represents in my world. Think about that. That's what I'm wrestling with. Like I said, I'm, I'm convicted about that because I'm noticing in my own heart a, a pocket of a lack of grace that I think needs to be dealt with. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can relate to that. Do I have grace for Jonah? Do I have grace for Jonah? Where's my heart in all of this? And I'm telling you, good parables Good parables have a way of exposing the heart. That's what they do. So I'll cut to the chase. Here's my, my more specific takeaway, the first one. 
regardless of whether you struggle with God sparing the Ninevites like Jonah did, or whether you struggle with God sparing Jonah like I do, the end result is the same. This parable is an invitation for you and for me to expand the horizons of our grace. Expand the horizons of our grace. God's grace and his mercy is far deeper than ours. Obviously, he's God, we're not. His grace is deeper. However, however, we are still invited to share in it with him, to express it to others, to live it out. The Apostle Paul made it, made it really clear. He said, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. You see right there, that is the grace of God offered to every single person while they are still sinners. While Nineveh was still sinning, while Jonah was still sinning, God's grace was on offer. Nineveh repented of their ways. Jonah had a long way to go, but he still cried out to the Lord in his great trouble, and both were spared from destruction. If they can be saved from God's condemnation, then why should they still receive mine? As followers of Jesus, we are called, like Jonah, we are called to represent God's heart to this broken world. We're his ambassadors. We are his representatives. And that includes his outrageous love, his outrageous grace towards those who don't deserve it, whatever that may look like. Evil sinners, holier-than-thou Christians, they deserve our grace because we represent God. Look, if we want to close the credibility gap in our community, and I think learning how to love our enemies, both outside and inside the church, is a pretty good place to start. That's what I've been convicted about from this story. That's what I'm chewing on. I mean, who knew, right? The story of a, a dude getting swallowed by a fish was going like, to lead to me doing a lot of introspection this week, but it did. Maybe it is for you as well. But I do want to switch gears a little bit here and talk about the second takeaway. The second takeaway from this story has a lot more to do with, with the words of this psalm of thanksgiving itself, because I think they speak a lot of truth, like I said. So let's look at, this, at what this psalm has to say, um, because I think even though it's spoken by a pretty imperfect protagonist, these words of truth can still speak. Specifically, I, I think they, they still speak truth to those of us who find ourselves sinking beneath the waves of this chaotic, broken world. Those of us who find ourselves drowning. In verse 8, the psalm says, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. And this sentiment, this is true for all of us. I mean, even today, I know most of us don't go around, we don't have little idols in our houses, and we don't go to temples very often, but we do sure worship a lot of false gods in our day-to-day -day lives. The false gods of money, false gods of, of success, of, of lust, of power, the false god of self. 
We worship these false gods. We sacrifice our lives to these gods. We give them whatever they're asking for. And you know what happens? This is a a story I'm sure a lot of us could speak to. At first, those false gods reward us, right? They they give us what we're looking for. You know, we start out, we find ourselves getting more successful and, and more powerful, and we feel good. We're the masters of our own universe, and it feels good. Of course. We know how the story goes because it doesn't take long, does it? For our our selfish pursuits to start choking the life out of us, to start wrapping our head in seaweed. Our lust, our greed keeps growing and it can't be satisfied anymore. These, These false gods demand more and more from us and eventually we can't keep giving them what they're looking for. We sink into the depths. Our heads are wrapped in seaweed. We're at the roots of the mountains. Our sacrifice to these false gods, it just leads to our destruction in a thousand different ways. So here's the deal. If that, what I just said, if that describes you in any way right now, if you feel yourself being choked by the chaotic, broken world or the false gods that that you've been sacrificing to, I want this psalm of thanksgiving to speak truth to you. You may, you may have turned your back on God's mercies, but you can turn to him again. Like evil, destructive Nineveh, like the rebellious prophet Jonah, you can turn around. You can repent. Repent. Now, I know that that is a very heavy theological word. It's got a lot of baggage. Repent sounds like something, it's a heavy word. It's actually really simple. I want to I explain repentance to you right now. And I'm going to do something. My dad taught this many, many times over the years. Some of you have probably seen it dozens of times. I'm going to show you what repentance looks like. You ready? This is repentance. That's it. That's repentance. Repentance is moving one direction. Stopping, turning around, and going the other way. That's repentance. And guess what? That is now possible for every one of us. This is the invitation that God extends to us in his grace. Every one of us who are being drowned by this life, we are given an invitation to turn around and to head back to him. To those of us who have turned our backs on God's mercy, listen to this. Turn your face to God's mercy. Turn your face to God's mercy and he will lift you up. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus died. This is why he rose again to open a door out of death and destruction for you, for you. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever. But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you in your holy temple. When Jesus came, when he walked among us, he told people that he was going to show them a sign. You know what he called it? The sign of Jonah. He said, I'm going to show you the sign of Jonah because... Just like Jonah, he was going to descend into the the land of the dead. He was going to descend to the roots of the mountains. He was going to be imprisoned in the earth whose gates locked shut forever, except, except they didn't lock shut for him. 
No, because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, God raised Christ from the dead and he shattered the gates of death in the process forever. The gates of death were shattered and when he rose, he didn't rise alone. No, he rose gripping our hands and pulling us out of the grave with him. We are being given life through the resurrection of Christ. Turn your face to God's mercy. Cry out to him. Remember the Lord and look up. The gates of death have been shattered. His hand is extended to you. It does not have anything to do with whether you deserve that. It has nothing to do with whether you've earned it, whether you've done the right religious things or any of it, even said the right words in a prayer. No, it has everything to do. It has everything to do with whether you are willing to stop, turn around, and look up and start moving in the other direction. He is reaching out to you. Turn your face to God's mercy, and he will lift you up. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.